How about we pray together? God, the waiting, in a sense, feels like uh, torture because we're eager for you to come. Like Revelation says there, we join the church throughout all generations in saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. We are eager to be with you in that final full context where your kingdom is done on, or your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And we look forward to that day. But I pray that you would give us patience and endurance while we wait. And I pray that you would give us confidence that our waiting is not in vain, that you have purpose and intention for it. And I pray that our hearts would grow with anticipation so that as the coming of the day of Christ grows closer, we would be eager for its coming. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and I, I pray that you would protect our hearts from neglecting what your word says. Lord, we as Christians are people who love your word. We love what you've spoken to us. And so as we gather and we hear a sermon and we look at the text of Scripture, I pray that you would safeguard us from closing our ears and closing our hearts to receive what your word says. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would open eyes and open hearts, um, that we might see you and know you more through this time. Jesus, I pray that as we look at what it means that you are Lord, that we would come to trust you as Lord. And we pray this for your sake. Amen. I would love for you to open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 1. So as we celebrate Advent this year, we are spending the weeks leading up to Christmas just reflecting on kind of the different aspects of the nature of Jesus, the different aspects of who Jesus is. And last week we talked about Christ the man, and we looked pretty closely at what it means that Jesus was a human, that he was like us. And we can find comfort and encouragement in the fact that Christ was a man like us, that he lived his life and honored God and brought reconciliation between man and God as a person. He did that work as a human like us. In theological terms, we would call this the imminence of God. What does that mean? It means that our God is near to us. He can sympathize with us. He knows what the experience of being human is like. He's concerned about us. He's tender towards us and he draws close to us. God's imminence means that God is with us, which I think is a precious and comforting truth to us, particularly in those moments in our life when things get hard and when the sorrows are many and life is challenging. We can reflect on the fact that Christ knows what those experiences are like. He's experienced those same sorrows and hardships like a human, like us. But even as he was fully man, we have to also emphasize the other great truth regarding the incarnation of Christ, that Jesus remained totally and completely God. Jesus, in his one complete person, had two natures, one human and one divine. And so today we're going to talk about that other piece, the divine nature of Christ, the fact that Jesus is Lord. And the theological term that we would use here would be the transcendence of God. 
in his deity, our God, Jesus, is nothing like us. He's eternal. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. He's omnipresent and omnibenevolent. He's perfectly just, perfectly righteous, and the nature of his being knows no bounds, no limitations. He has no needs. He transcends everything that we know, which is also, again, a great comfort for us, particularly in our sorrows and our trials and our difficulties, because it reminds us that our God, God's transcendence reminds us that our God is powerful to help us in our time of need. Not only can our God empathize with us, not only does he know what it's like to struggle, but he has the power to rescue us out of everything that ails us and assaults us because he's Lord of all things. So today we're going to simply reflect on Christ the Lord, and I would hope that in doing this, he would receive glory as we stand in awe of him and we worship him and we come to trust him more and give him the praise that he rightly deserves. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 12. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we recently got our order of more Bibles, and we would love for you to grab one of those. You're welcome to take it and keep it, unless you are a repeat Bible taker offender, in which case, if you've already taken one or two or more, leave a couple for the rest of us. <laughs> I'm just kidding. If you need more, take them. All right, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Real quick, pro-Bible tip in case you didn't know, and I hope that this is present in your Bible. Look right before where the text changes and looks a little bit different there in verse 23. Do you see a little teeny number or a little teeny letter? If you didn't already know this, if that letter is present or that number is present, it corresponds to where this is taken from in the Old Testament. So you should be able to look down at the notes at the bottom of the page, or maybe it's in the middle of your page in between the column, and you can see where this is coming from in the Old Testament, and then you can hopefully flip there yourself to take a look at it. So the version I'm reading from has a tiny little D there, and it tells us that this is cited from Isaiah 7.14. That's going to happen again in chapter 2, verse 6, but in case you weren't aware, I just make you aware of that. Back to verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So again, I want to look at the glory of Jesus and the fact that he is our Lord And I want to point out to you, I think, six ways that Matthew communicates to us the lordship of Jesus in these verses. Even as Matthew is telling us about the birth of the Christ child as a little boy, we're given, I think, at least six details that that reveal to us that this is also the Lord, that Christ is Lord. So, first of all, we're told his heritage. Christ comes from a divine family by virtue of the fact that his father is God. Now, it's true that if you look in verse 20 of chapter 1, we're told by Matthew and by the angel here that Joseph is the son of David. So that's hinting at the earthly lineage of Jesus. What family line does Jesus come from? Well, on the human side, he comes from David, king of Israel. But that's not where I think the angel is really placing the emphasis here. I don't think that's what Matthew wants to make primary in these verses. Instead, I think the important information really comes at the end of verse 20, which is already now here being repeated because it was mentioned previously that Jesus is going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. So we talked about the natural human aspect of that last week, emphasizing that Jesus was truly a man. He was conceived in the womb of Mary, although he had no earthly father. But here I want us to think about the divine implications of what's being said, the divine heritage of Jesus. So did you know that the longest continuously reigning monarchy on earth is the imperial house of Japan? Were you aware of that? The current emperor, Akihito, traces his family heritage all the way back to the first emperor of his family, whose name was Emperor Jimu. And that same family has sat on the imperial throne of Japan since 660 BC. Which means that Emperor Akihito's family 
His heritage spans 2,681 years, all the way back to Jimu in 660 BC. That's stunning. That's really impressive. But that's nothing compared to the heritage regarding Jesus Christ, this baby. Because although he's going to sit on the throne of his ancestor David, who ruled Israel a thousand years before Jesus was born, far more importantly, Jesus comes from the heritage of the family of God himself. He is the Son of God. And as such, God being his heavenly Father, Christ is Lord. By virtue of the fact that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and he is literally the Son of God. All that belongs to God the Father belongs to his Son, Christ. And so Christ is Lord by virtue of his divine heritage because he sits on the throne of God the Father who is God Almighty. And even now, he rules and reigns from that throne over all of creation. Second, Christ is Lord by virtue of his title. So throughout history, many people have claimed titles for themselves or they've been given titles by other people. Alexander of Macedon, who conquered the known world in 330 BC, by virtue of his accomplishments, has been given the title Alexander the Great because of his conquests and how great his kingdom was. On the other hand, James I of England, who was wise in small matters but a fool in the more weighty matters, has been given the title the wisest fool in all of Christendom. Some titles are flattering, other titles not so flattering. But my point is that Matthew records the title given to Jesus at his birth, birth and it's in verse 22. Jesus is given the title Emmanuel, which means God with us. And of all the titles that have been dispensed through human history, no title is like this title. Now, if you know anything of human history, then you know that there have been many kings and rulers throughout history that have claimed for themselves a sense of deity. They've claimed to be God. In fact, I mentioned the dynasty of the Japanese. That uh, empire claimed that their emperor was, in fact, a god. Up until Japan lost World War II, and the Americans forced the emperor to denounce his deity. So for 2,600 years, Japanese emperors claimed to be divine. They claimed to be God. Which actually is an old tradition for kings and rulers. If you go back to Egypt, the pharaohs claimed to be God. If you go back to Caesar, he claimed to be divine as well. So if I'm claiming to you that this title, Emmanuel, God with us, is unique. Why? Why is it unique? Why is it different than the Japanese emperor or the Egyptian pharaohs or Caesar? Well, those kings who claimed to be divine were making a claim something like this. I am God. I have risen from humanity into the realm of the gods because I am so great. But in the title given to Jesus, Emmanuel, the claim is that God has become a man, not man has become a God. It's the exact opposite. The claim made by kings and rulers is a claim of pride and arrogance. 
that a man has ascended and become something more than man, something divine. But the title ascribed to Jesus here is a title of humility. God has laid aside his divinity and he has become a man like us. And so thus, again, this title is unique in human history. No title like this has ever been given. Now, we could rightly understand why a man might claim to be God, right? Caesar said, I am God, therefore I have all kinds of power over you and over your life. There's extra prestige attached to that claim. But we're baffled by this claim here, that God became a man? That's an astonishing thing. Someone tell me, for what possible purpose could God choose to leave his throne in heaven and become a man? Why would God humble himself in this way? God who owns all things stands nothing to gain by becoming like us. Well, I think the answer is in the title, Emmanuel, God with us. God has become one of us to restore the rift between God and man, to heal the wound that our pride has created, to bridge the chasm between our pride and his holiness, our sin and his perfection, to be a God who's not distant, but a God who is with us. Not a God who is merely transcendent, but a God who is also imminent and close. To redeem us and display his grace and his love. And so Christ is our Lord because of the title that he has. Emmanuel, God with us. God who takes on flesh and humbles himself. God who reconciles man to himself. The third way that Matthew tells us Jesus is Lord is by pointing to his supreme intelligence. We're told in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, that wise men came from the east and they came looking for this baby that they might worship him. And they knew that he had been born because they saw a sign in the heavens that somehow communicated to them that a king had been born. Now we use this term wise men and I think we can and we should use that term, but maybe your Bible also puts a little footnote here. I think wise men is an accurate translation. I don't want to undermine that. But there's something more going on here than just wise men. Like we might think of some scholar or some professor. The Greek word that's used is actually the word magi. And this word is where we get our English word magic from or magician. It comes from the Greek word magi. So these were men who were looking up at the stars, and from looking at the stars, somehow they were able to calculate or discern that a king had been born. I find that very interesting. I think that's a little too weird if you ask me. There's something more going on here than just science or mere wisdom, the way that we think about it. These were not men that we might call astronomers who were studying the stars in order to understand the stars. No, these were, men were astrologers. They were studying the stars in order that they might discern from those stars human affairs. They were looking to the stars to interpret the future, interpret life, 
So you have to understand that before the scientific revolution of the Enlightenment, most of humanity believed in a concept called magic. I don't mean sleight of hand, like you and I might think of a Las Vegas magician. We're talking about spirits that dwelt in a spiritual realm that could be approached through things like incantations and spells. And the general idea was that man could learn ways to manipulate these spirits and this spiritual realm could manipulate this divine intelligence by using the right kinds of rituals and spells. So the concept of magic, as it appears in, let's say, Disney movies, that's kind of what we're talking about. These magi were men who thought that they could unlock the secrets of the universe by studying the signs and the stars that would allow them to gain power over the universe. A magi or a wise man was, was seeking to domesticate divine intelligence in order to bend that intelligence to his will to acquire greater power or wealth. So these men in their home country in the East were using the practice of astrology to try and gain power over the divine, to become wise themselves and to ascend into the knowledge of the divine. But their plan backfires, if you think about it. Instead of domesticating the divine and bending the divine to their own will, they encounter the one true God who in some mysterious way reveals himself to them through the signs they've perceived in the heavens and he brings them under his spell. So much so that they travel from this distant land in the east to bow down before this child and freely offer up their wealth to him. Instead of getting power over God through their magical practices, instead, God captivates their heart. And he makes them bow down before the supreme intelligence of Jesus Christ and give glory to the God of all wisdom. The wise men enter the story to remind us that Jesus is Lord and his lordship, it extends beyond the realm of earthly empires into the realm even of knowledge. All knowledge, all right thinking, all intelligence and understanding, it belongs to this Lord. He is Lord not just of the material realm of things that are, but also of the realm of all thoughts and truth. Where should a wise man, a man seeking intelligence and wisdom and knowledge, where should he go? He should go with these magi to the feet of Jesus, bowing down before him, before the one whose mind is brilliant beyond description. And so Jesus is revealed in this passage to be supreme intelligence, the Lord of all wisdom. Next, the fourth way that Matthew highlights that Jesus is Lord is his notoriety. Look at chapter 2, verse 20, or verses 2 through 4. And notice that when Herod finds out that a king has been born in his country, in the city of Bethlehem, the text tells us that Herod is troubled. Again, looking kind of closely at the Greek here helps us understand a little bit more. Herod being troubled is more than just confusion. This Greek word has kind of a range of meaning. It can communicate a, a few different things. Words like frightened, 
or agitated or even disturbed are words that could be used to translate the Greek here. Herod was a Jew, although he wasn't a very religious one. He wasn't a very good Jew. But being a Jew, he knew the prophecies about the Messiah. He knew what the Old Testament said concerning a king after the line of David who would come. And he recognized that if wealthy wise men had journeyed from afar because of a star, this was no ordinary baby that had been born in his country. And Herod certainly remembered from his Jewish religious background, which is why he called those who would know the text of the Old Testament together to ask them, what is this thing that I may have missed? And when he finds out that there is a prophecy related to the Messiah that might mean trouble for his kingdom, Herod is rightly frightened. He's terrified. He foresees in the notoriety of this child prophesied from of old a lordship that is greater even than his own lordship. And he knows that if these prophecies are true and they relate to this child who has now been born, then Herod's own power is nothing in comparison. His kingdom cannot stand in opposition to the kingdom of this Lord. Which is why a little bit later, if we were to keep reading in chapter 2, we're told that Herod had every male child born in the city of Bethlehem slaughtered in an effort to eliminate the competition and destroy this king so that his kingdom would be secure. But we're told by Matthew that Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, fled to Egypt and they escaped this plot. But the point is that Jesus is Lord because his notoriety strikes fear even into the heart of kings. What do kings and powerful rulers fear? They fear nothing except a greater king, a greater power, a greater Lord. And there's none greater or more powerful than Jesus. Now it's true that even today the world conspires against Christ just like Herod conspired against him when he was a child. But a day is coming when the nations will no longer conspire against the Lord Jesus. Instead, they will rightly tremble before him because he is the king over kings and he is the Lord above all lords. And so Matthew helps us see that this child is Lord because even the king feared him. Next, Matthew helps us see the authority of our Lord Jesus. And he does this by recording in chapter 2, verses 7 and 9, this little detail about a star in the heavens that pointed to the place of Christ's birth. There are rulers today who wield some incredible authority, if you think about it. You know, at a word the armies of their nations would muster and go to war. At a word, their nuclear weapons might be unleashed. But Christ, who is our Lord, his authority goes far beyond the authority of armies or nukes. He is Lord of angels, Lord of galaxies. The nuclear furnaces burning in all the trillions of stars in all of creation, they obey this child, Jesus. 
he lit those fires, and they burn because he makes them. And to signal his coming, he commands the light in the heavens to flare his arrival, and all the earth looks up to marvel at this star. What does it mean? The darkness yields to a burst of light in the night because creation itself rejoices before the authority of this Lord. And when many years later, Christ would die hanging on a cross, do you remember what the Gospels record? That even the stars grieved and mourned at the loss of their king. Because we're told that for a period of time on the day that Christ was crucified, a great darkness hung over the land. In the very middle of the day, the Lord of creation had given his life and in sadness of his light expiring, even the sun itself grew dark and mourned for a time. Jesus is Lord not only because the wise seek him or because kings fear him, but also because all of creation obeys him. He has the authority to command and the stars do his bidding. But last, Matthew helps us see that Jesus is Lord by showing us that even great men perceived the even greater glory present in this child. We're told in verse 11 that those wise men who traveled from afar, they fell down before him and they worshipped, as I mentioned. Well, if we incorporate into what Matthew records some of the other Gospels, in Luke, we're told this story about when Mary, after she hears the good news, she goes to her cousin's house, Elizabeth. And in the womb of Elizabeth is the preborn child, John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist hears Mary's voice, knowing that she is the mother of God and Christ is already conceived in her womb, John the Baptist does flips in his mommy's tummy. He rejoices. Well, Jesus would go on later to say that John the Baptist was the greatest man yet to live among men. But John said of himself, I'm not even worthy to touch the feet of this Jesus who is Lord. We also know that a heavenly host of a multitude of angels sang a song of triumph to celebrate the birth of Christ. And we know that not only the great wise men came to worship him, but we're told in another gospel that the lowly shepherds who heard the singing of those angels, they came to look upon this child and they could see the face of eternity in Christ. And Mary herself, the mother of this child, expressed in great spirit-inspired poetry the glory that was present in the son that she had given birth to. And so we perceive from Scripture that Jesus is Lord from the moment of his birth because all around him, people perceived and saw and understood and appreciated his glory. Glory as of the only God. Now this brings us to the question that we so often encounter at the end. So what? What does it really matter that much? We're talking about a child born 2,000 years ago who was Lord. What does that mean for my life here and now? 
Well, I would say two things as we close. First, we have this problem where we don't really understand the concept of lordship very well because we live in what I would call is a democratic republic where under our constitution, in a sense, we are all sovereign individuals, sovereign over our own lives. In a societal sense, we are each our own lord. But through most of human history, society operated under a very different kind of social con uh, contract. The contract was that you as a person in your weakness would surrender your rights, your life, into the hand of a lord or a king who had power and wealth. And in exchange, that lord or that king would provide you with protection and maybe even some kind of provision, a piece of land for you to work that you might grow food, protection from invaders. And that helps us, I think, understand a little bit better what we mean by Christ is Lord. Christians are people who have willingly chosen to surrender their lives over to Jesus as Lord. We are not our own Lord. We are not sovereign in ourselves. Christ is Lord. In exchange for our life, he protects us from God's wrath for sin and also from Satan, the great enemy of mankind who would love nothing more than to destroy us. He liberates us from death and he provides for all of our spiritual needs. In fact, he protects us from all evil and all ruin and he makes every provision for our well-being as he sovereignly and wisely sees fit to do. But this means, in a very real sense, then, that Christians are quite literally owned by Jesus. We are slaves to Christ our Lord. That language should make you a little bit uncomfortable. Scripture teaches that we are slaves to Christ who is our Lord. There's an exchange that takes place when someone comes under the lordship of Jesus. He gives us his protection and we surrender our lives to him in totality. Now, I'm of the opinion that Christianity in America today is kind of in a sad state. Because I think we've given up teaching people this really profound truth. It appears to me that many people who call themselves Christians, they don't understand the terms of this agreement regarding lordship. They're happy to take from Jesus the protection that he offers them. I think we talk about this somewhat regularly. I would say they like the idea of Jesus who is Savior. But the concept of Christ who is Lord, who demands fealty, Christ who is Lord, who is sovereign, Christ who is Lord, who owns you, I think people struggle with that idea. They don't really like the concept of actually surrendering their life to Jesus in exchange for the protection and salvation that he offers. And you need to understand, hear me quite clearly here. The good news of Christianity 
is not only that you can be saved from the ruin of your sin under the protection of Jesus, the good news is also that your life no longer belongs to you. You've done a terrible job managing it on your own anyway. There's one better who offers to take it from you and guard you and protect you. All you must do is surrender lordship of your heart to him. It's good news that your life can belong to him. And if your your life does belong to him, then it falls on you to live your life in a way that honors him. A way that pleases him as your Lord. Which is to say it's your responsibility to live your life for him by living in obedience to what he has told you and asked you to do. To offer up your life as a living sacrifice that your Lord might be pleased with you. This brings us to the second part of the so what question. Let me simply point out that a Lord is someone with absolute authority. Again, in America, we don't have anything like this. You know, the president does some sort of executive order and a judge in the middle of nowhere says you can't do that. And he's constrained. But a Lord is someone with absolute authority. A Lord is sovereign. That means that a Lord does what he wants and everyone else does what he wants. Your life belongs to God to do with as he pleases. Do you agree with that statement? And so my point here is that if you belong to Christ, then as Lord, he owns you. Your thoughts, they belong to him. They're not secret for you to have. They're his. Your actions, what you do, those belong to him. They're his. Your money is his. Even your time is something that he has only loaned to you, that he has entrusted to you to be a steward of. The very days and hours and minutes of your life are his. Your marriage, that belongs to him. Your desires, those too belong to him. Your goals and your ambitions are his. Your children are his. Do you you realize that? That even your children who you love, probably, hopefully, more than anything else in this world, they are not yours. They belong to Christ. He is Lord over them. Your home is his. Your career is his. Your reputation belongs to him. Christ the Lord owns you. And as we think about Advent and waiting and anticipating the return of our Lord, then I think that we should take a moment to reflect. Truly, if Christ were to return today, would he find me living as if my life belonged to him? Would he commend me and praise me for the way that I was living my life under his lordship already? Or would he be disappointed with me? Would he rebuke me for saying that he is Lord with my mouth while I squander everything that he has given to me?
And I pray for us that if Christ were to return this week or this year or maybe in this lifetime, your life or mine, that he would find the door of our hearts unlocked. That as he walks in, he would find the lights are on because we're waiting and we're prepared. The floors are swept. The toilets are cleaned. The food is ready to be set out because we're anticipating his return any moment. Everything is orderly because we've been eagerly waiting for him to come. That's the kind of reception that Christ our Lord deserves from us who are only his humble servants. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would make us a people that are not merely waiting, but a people who are waiting ready for you. Jesus, I thank you that you are Lord. I thank you that you are supreme intelligence, that the wise recognize your face. I thank you that you have all authority in heaven and on earth and the stars bend to your will. I thank you that kings fear you and that you have this title, Emmanuel, God with us. And God, I pray that you would help us reflect on these things and not be caught up in the busyness of December. And that in reflecting on these things, that our hearts would truly be prepared to receive you as our Lord. That we would be eager to serve you and show our love for you in our obedience. Jesus, would you help us in these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.